If you'll notice on the, the screen, there's a hammock up there. We're in a section in Hebrews that where we're talking about God's rest. And it's hard to define in physical terms because it's not a physical rest. We're going to look at the difference between the rest that Israel had when they came into the promised land and the rest that we have as believers, as children of God. Uh, but I have a big hammock in my backyard, and I was thinking about rest, and I thought, i got to have a picture of a hammock. So when I designed the thing this morning for this morning, it was like, yeah, I think that that kind of typifies rest to me. But what's true is as we're looking at this in, in context, we, we looked last week at, at what hardness of heart is. We looked in the book of Hebrews where the writer is very specific. He devotes two chapters to rest and, and, and to what will prevent us from entering God's rest, which is hardness of heart. We've looked at that. We looked at, remember, uh, Israel's call to worship back in the first century would have been today that the, the, the priests would go out at the, uh, at the temple and, and at the synagogue and, and they would begin to, uh, sort of chant this, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as they did in the rebellion. And so the people would be very, very familiar with this saying as they came together to worship. The Jews would. And now here, these Christians that had come out of Judaism, these Hebrew Christians, would know what was being said, and it would get their attention. And that's why he starts with that. But then he goes, remember, we looked in Exodus last week, and we saw how the children of Israel, God told them in chapter 6 that he was going to deliver them, that he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people and he would redeem them with an outstretched arm and great judgments and all of that. He revealed his will ahead of time. And then they got out of the land. Remember, we saw the majestic thing that he did at the, at the Red Sea and, and piled up the waters and, and pulled them through, drowned the Egyptian army. And we looked at all of that last week and, and how... Israel, they, they did the equivalent of an 11-day backpack trip to Kadesh Barnea. And what happened there was significant because they were challenged to believe God, to trust God, and to go in and inhabit the land. But the spies, remember, they came out and they said, 10 of them said, no, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And they actually, we looked at the sin of unbelief. There's two components to the sin of unbelief. One is you don't believe God. You choose not to believe what he has said, not to believe, in this case, his promises, because he had promised them that land. But the other part of that is, and, and usually in conjunction with it, is you're believing a lie. Uh, said before, it, it, we can make up a story about things, and then we act on bad information, and what's usually the result of that is kind of a disaster. And so, We'll see both this morning as we go through the text, but really, last week, as we mentioned, the writer, he's doing, essentially, he's doing a Bible study for these people who are struggling in their faith, and, and he reaches back into the Old Testament with one passage after another to support the points he's making, and that continues here. Remember, chapter and verse markings are added, and this is a continuation in chapter four of what he's already launched into in chapter three. Why? Because their hearts were hard. They were getting harder. The people in the first century that he's writing to were struggling. They were losing property. They were losing livelihood. They were losing family. They were losing, uh, they were excommunicated from Judaism. 
aside from the Romans who solved all of their problems with swords, and they were, life was tough. They were going through no small amount of trials. And so as we're looking at this, we see that the remedy for a hard heart, again, the point of last week's study was that we apply God's past faithfulness. They should have looked and said, well, he took us through the Red Sea. He took us out of Egypt. He gave us all this plunder to take with us, gold and silver and all that, livestock. And, and so he's brought us out into this wilderness. And what did they say? They said, he brought us out here to die. That's the lie. See, that's the lie. No, he brought us out here to get us into the land. But in that in-between place, in that wilderness place, we often can find ourselves stuck because we've been redeemed. We're children of the king. We're, we're walking with him, but we're not taking what he offers by way of promises to us. We're not availing ourselves of the promises of God because we, it's truly, it's, it's the sin of unbelief. We're believing the light. And God can't pull me through this. I don't see how we're going to get out of this. Oh, honey, I don't know what's going to happen with our finances. Or, I mean, fill in the blank, folks. We go through stuff. And the writer, again, by way of encouragement, but I also by way of strong exhortation, is letting these people know, look, you are at risk right now. You've gotten out of the land, but you're not coming in. And so that's what we're looking at here. And, and it was a crisis for them. And, and, you know, nobody likes a crisis. I mean, I've had the phone call in the middle of the night more than once. Uh, and I would imagine many of you have as well. I mean, all of us go through things. Things happen. I remember one time I was teaching the book of Romans at a church in California. And it was an evening service. And, and I had just finished saying and you don't know what's going to happen by the time you hit that door. But when we leave here, we do not know what's going to happen next in our lives. And I had just said that, and the phone rang in the church. And uh, our kids, our son and, and his wife and their two sons had been hit by a drunk driver, and there were four life flights going on. We had to shut down the study and, and, and leave and try to head to the right hospital because one was in another state and one was down in another city. And uh, it, was a, it was a very stressful time. So we don't know. We, it's hard. We, we don't have the ability to look ahead and to see when things are going to hit us. But trusting that God does, that he's got this. Trusting that while we don't know when a crisis is going to hit, we do have the ability to plan for them in, in the sense of what we're looking at this morning. I'm going to read the first 11 verses here in Hebrews chapter 4. We'll go through it and then we'll come back. We'll unpack it a bit and uh, take some things out uh, to actually apply to our own lives. So beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, 
After such a long time as it has been said, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Note that. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That's a lot, uh, but we'll work through it, and, and the Lord willing, it'll make more sense as we, as we get through it this morning. So the, the first thing, uh, that just to make a note, uh, something that catches my eye in the text, in verse 4 and in verse 8, the writer is talking about God speaking. Those are clear references to the word. They're clear references to the Old Testament in this, in this context. So, of course, the New Testament was being written as the writer's writing. But he's talking about the word of God, and he's talking about God speaking. There was no problem trusting that God's word was God's voice, and that God uses his word. It's always by his spirit through his word. And he uses his word to speak into the hearts and lives of his people. That's assumed. So settle that going in. Understand that that's part of why he's putting these things down the way that they are. Now, when he talks about rest, this is not the same kind of rest that they had in Canaan. We'll, we'll talk about that. But it's a critically important theme here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I think about in the parable of the sower, where remember there's four different soil types that the, the, the seed is the word of God and the sower goes out to sow the seed and he sows it on the different kinds of ground and only one ground hears the word and allows it to go deep. The word gets choked, the word gets stolen, the word is not acted upon, and those other three conditions. So as we look at this, the theme of rest is very, very important. It's very important for us, and it's a blessing to walk in his rest. As I mentioned, the writer devotes two chapters to this, and, and we do well to heed the things that are talking, being talked about here. Also, we've talked about, remember, in the book of Hebrews, there are six warnings we looked at the first two. The first one was the danger of drifting, remember, in chapter 2. And then the second one in chapter 3 was the danger we looked at last week of a hard heart. And this warning is the danger of falling short. And he talks about, see to it that you don't fall short of his rest. So four things we're going to keep in mind as we get into the text. It, it just it, that sort of sets the table for going through this. The first is, is looking at and remembering the first century Jews. This is the general context of this letter. As I mentioned, their faith was beginning to falter. They were restless. And I use that word on purpose because he's talking about rest and how often people get restless. They were restless. They were anxious. They were struggling to believe God very much the same way that Israel struggled to believe God there at Kadesh Barnea and they chose not to. They chose to not go in and we know what happened to them. We looked at that extensively last week where everybody from 20 years old and up died before going in and inheriting the promised land. So, that's the first thing. The second is that Israel had balked when they got to Kadesh Barnea. Do you know what, what it is when a horse balks? Well, I know, I'll share a story with you. Uh, I was uh, at a Bedouin camp in the Judean wilderness in Israel a few years back with a group of pastors. And we got on camels this one morning. 
And uh, in the desert, they have these like flash flood events where it rains really, really hard and then it stops. And it had done that the day before. Uh, and we had spent the night at this in this Bedouin tent. It was really cool. It was a fun time. And and uh, so we got out to do this camel ride in the morning, and there were two guys for camel, and, and I'm on my camel, I'm like the second one back, uh, and there were two guys on a camel in front of us, and camels have these big round feet. They're perfectly fitted for walking on top of sand. Well, they're not real good in mud. And we're going along, these camels are kind of trotting along, you know, and you get tossed all over the place on top of those things. And, and so, you know, we're going along, and, it, you know, I've got the reins, and, and a guy's sitting behind me, and all of a sudden, the camel in front of us balks. It stops, and it stops dead in its track to where our camel stopped, and I kind of got thrown forward, but it stopped too late because I watched this camel and those big padded feet slid out on this big patch of mud... And pretty soon the whole camel is out on the mud and literally did this with all four feet. And there's two guys on top of it. And, you know, I was like freaked out because I thought, you know, that camel's guy, it's a big animal. If it rolls over, it could kill these guys. And they actually, it went straight down. But that's when I learned that eh, I know a lot more about how camels balk than horses because I'm not a horse guy. But uh, Israel did that. They balked. At the, they got right to the border and they went, oh, no, 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 no. I don't think that we can do this. This is, this is not working out for us. And so we would keep that in mind because God was saying, look, I've brought you this far. I want to take you in. But they refused. We looked at that in Numbers 14. Uh, the third thing here is when he talks about, he says in David, uh, it's a reference to Psalm 95. And what we're seeing here is that the writer will be working us forward in this text. He works us forward in time. He actually goes back to the creation he stops at Israel with the whole deal at the Red Sea and then, or at, with, at the borders of Canaan and all that. And then he goes forward to David, King David's time, 500 years later. And then he goes forward to these guys' time. And we can keep going on that and actually take application from it by jumping forward even further, coming 2,000 years forward from when this was written and see direct application to our own lives. So keep that in mind as we go through that too, because the writer is definitely working forward through time. It's really fascinating how he does it. Uh, the fourth thing is rest. The Canaan rest was different than the rest that we have as believers. And so what he uses, though, he uses that metaphorically to illustrate that there is a rest, a divine rest that we as Christians can enter into. And it truly, it's a birthright. It's something that we all have the ability to avail ourselves of. And, and, and you know what? I, just being transparent with you guys, I wrestle with this sometimes. Sometimes I'm in a state of unrest. Sometimes I'm wrestling it out. Sometimes it's hard to get to that point and finally go, okay, Lord, I got to just give this to you. I got to trust you've got this. I've got to trust that you're in control and I'm not. And these circumstances, this situation, whatever it is I'm dealing with, that it may not make sense to me, but I know it makes sense to you. And so there's that point where we're challenged. We're all growing in this. So I don't want anybody to get condemned about this this morning. Don't walk out of here with a dark cloud over your head thinking, oh man, I'll just never, because then you're actually not resting. But the point is that, the, let me give you a definition for the rest, because it's God's rest that's being talked about here. It's not some formula. This isn't a self-help thing. It is actually virtually, literally, the rest of God that he wants to share with us. 
all right? And this is what it is. It's a state of being where your entire weight, the weight of your life is let down onto Jesus. I'll say it again. It's a state of being where the entire weight of your life is let down onto him, onto Jesus, onto God. And, and, and what that means is everything you worry about, it means your family, it means all that you have, it's everything. Only when I let that down, when I let the weight of my life down onto Jesus, will I have what the Bible calls rest. All right? That, it's very different. What he's talking about is a metaphorical, physical rest that Israel enjoyed when they finally got to Canaan. But we'll see here that the writer, he says, well, that was great, but it doesn't stop there. There is another rest, a greater rest, as we go along. Now, contrast that to today. Look at our lives, look at our culture, look at our world, and we live in a, a world of perpetual unrest. And it's unrest. Uh, there's unrest in our culture. Look around. I mean, it's especially, I mean, as, as the days grow darker, as the day draws nearer for, for Jesus to come for his church, as we endure to the end, as we go through these things, we look around and we see it's just getting darker out there. Praise God that being people who have the light of Christ, that as it gets darker, our light shines brighter by default. But we live in a culture that is anti-Christ increasingly, uh, the political landscape, oh my goodness. I, I look at, at what's going on. I mean, are those guys ever going to get anything done? Uh, and I'm not going to run the whole political, I'll, you guys know me, I can rabbit trail on that one. But the point is, we look out at the political landscape in our world, it's in a state of perpetual unrest. There's nobody getting any rest there in Washington, or I was looking at this whole deal with the Republicans in Salem, and, and where the governor called the police, and now the militia's stepping in, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, what a perfect illustration for what's going on in, in, in our politics, and in our political system. It's, it's just a mess. Bring it home. Many of us have unrest in our families. Many of us are going through things. Maybe there are broken relationships. Perhaps there is disease or illness or financial hardship. Those are weighty things. These are things that can really weigh us down. They're things that can begin to captivate us and, and things through which, if we're not careful, we can begin to doubt God and to doubt the fact that God's got this and that he's going to carry us through. And so we see that there's a lot of unrest there in our own lives, getting even more personal then. Uh, I know in my heart there are areas where you know, the enemy, he doesn't hit us on our strengths. He likes to sock us on our bruises. I, I'm convinced of that. And, and if I've got an area that I'm weak in, I, that's something that I'm going to struggle with and that I need to constantly take to the Lord. Uh, I think about my son in California. I have, uh, my, my daughter's been in heaven for a few years, and I think about my son. I worry about him, and, and I, I worry. just There's this, just this underlying fear. It's like, uh, you know, I just want to make sure he's okay. I told him once, I'm going to hire armed guards to follow you around, make sure you're all right. But just tongue-in-cheek, but, but those things can begin to grip our hearts, can't they? And what the writer is bringing out here is something so beautiful and so profound, profoundly simple, but profound nonetheless. 
The result of the unrest we see is people are increasingly impatient, stressed out, constantly on edge. I was in the drive-through not long ago, and the, there was one car behind me, and the guy in front of me was taking his time making an order. And this guy behind me had kind of a hot car, you know, kind of, like, kind of a muscle car. And all of a sudden, he's throwing these big reps, you know. And I'm like, dude, it's McDonald's, you know. It's like, come on. And, and pretty soon, he backs up, he screeches over. It was one of those ones that has two drive-throughs. And he goes to the other side. He's like, yeah, well, I'll show you. I'm on the other side. He ended up behind me at the window as it was. But it was like, really? Is it that important? So people are constantly on edge. We live in a stressed out world, and it's fair to say people are not resting. Part of what sets us apart, part of what sets the body of Christ apart is when there's a storm swirling all around us, and we're in this place where we're trusting the Lord, and we're seeing his hand, and people look and they marvel. And they go, Why are you just cruising along? I remember doing that with my son-in-law after my daughter died. I, I, I thought he was totally in denial. He wasn't. I said, how you doing, Matt? And he said, I'm doing great, John. And I said, all right, now how you really doing, Matt? And he said, I'm doing great. He had availed himself of God's rest. And I missed it. I wasn't. I was in a state of unrest. I was a, I was a mess for a while. But, but my point is, is that that hit him so hard. He said, John, you got to understand something. My faith is real. And in that, I have not asked God why he took my wife from me. I have thanked him every day for giving me the years that he gave me with the woman of my dreams. And I just said, praise God. I've got it. You're good. So we live in this weird place where we're, this world's not our home. And we do well to remember that especially when life's tragedies, life's crises, life's trials come and they hit us. The point is the, the, the writer takes this time and he's not wasting words. This is a spiritual rest. It's a rest for the soul. Uh, interesting. Though we're talking about a divine rest, we're talking about something that originates in the heart of God. It has a divine origin. This is God's, literally, God's rest. It originates in his heart. It's brought to us through the, the agency of the Holy Spirit. But it has a divine origin, a supernatural application, and a very practical effect upon those who walk in it. Peace, the fruit of his spirit. As we avail ourselves of his rest, we can walk in peace. So actually, we're going to start getting into the text now. That was all intro. Uh, we got a few minutes. As we look at chapter 4, actually, we're going to back up into chapter 3, verse 19, uh, just for context. And, and he says, he says, so we see that they, and I want you to pay attention to they and we as we go through this passage. There's a lot of they's and there's a lot of we's. Right? Tell you right up, ahead, uh, right up front, when it talks about they, it's talking about Israel. It's talking about when they balked at the edge of the promised land. It's talking about their disobedience. It's talking about the sin of unbelief. It's talking about their suffering and their carcasses. I told you how much I liked that word last week. Their carcasses dropping in the wilderness as a result of their unbelief. When he's talking about they, that's, he's still talking about that. When he's talking about we, he's talking about 
in context, he's talking about the Hebrew believers of the first century and coming forward, us. He's talking about people who have believed God and people who are part of his covenant, who people who are uh, Christians. And so when you see the they and the we in here, understand that. It'll help you to parse through this. So he says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, verse 1, remember the word therefore, what do we ask? What's it there for? All right, just answered that. It's there to refer backward. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. Now that sounds weird but we'll get to that. Lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Here the writer says, we need to be wary. He's saying, look, I don't want you to miss this. You can miss it. You can, you can have a relationship with God. You can be a child of, of his. You can be a Christian. You can be a believer and you can walk around churned up all the time. And be afraid of that because your life is going to be a mess, number one. Number two, you're going to have a terrible witness. And number three, if you don't know the Lord, if you're not moored, you will drift. This is one of the things that causes people to drift. Going back to chapter two, back to the last warning or the first warning. So uh, building on these three warnings, the danger of drifting, the danger of a hard heart, and now the danger of not getting this right, not walking in his rest. It's a real danger in the life of a believer, in the life of a son or daughter of God. So I'm going to read something to you. He says here, he talks about the promise of rest. And we, look at, we looked at last week when we looked at Israel, we looked at the promised land, the, the land that God had promised them. And that was symbolic of the rest. It's symbolic of the rest that the writer wants us to get and to wrap our arms around here. So uh, something I came across, this is a guy named William Barclay. He's one of my favorite Guys, I like to read his stuff. He says, the promises of God are not merely beautiful pieces of literature. There's some beautiful literature here in the book of Hebrews. Talked about it before. High literature, it's very high Greek. Uh, but he says, they're promises upon which a man or woman is meant to stake their life and dominate their actions. And that's the effect that the, the rest of God should have on his people. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe him. They didn't go in. They died not inheriting the promise. Don't follow their example. That's why he's saying, let us fear lest you fall short. And we need to fear. We're all prone to falling into the sin of unbelief. That's something I don't want to take hold in my life. And neither should you. Because what it amounts to is I'm not trusting God for the thing that's on my plate today. And, and, and that's a dangerous place to be. It's going to shape your actions. It shape their actions. Uh, the sin of unbelief is not only a failure to trust, but as I mentioned, it's believing a lie. Think about Ad, Adam and Eve. God told them what he told them. And then the, the serpent came and he said, well, hasn't God really said? And says, yeah, Eve looked and she thought it was desirable and all that stuff. She believed the lie. Look at Israel here at Kadesh Barnea. Oh, the giants, we can't, no, we're like grasshoppers. Oh, no, 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 there's no way we can take that land. It says they started out by saying, hey, man, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, all 12 of them agreed on that. But then pretty soon, 
That unbelief started to take hold and it began to shape their thoughts. Pretty soon they were exaggerating the thing to where it didn't even look like what they had just seen for the last 40 days. And so they're believing the lie. The first century Jews, considering going back to Judaism, thinking as though this whole Christianity thing is like a revolving door, it's not. There's one way to God. And that's it. To go back to Judaism, and and we'll see over and over again, the writer, he holds that up against becoming apostate, uh, about walking away. Judaism was never going to do it. It wouldn't do it then, and it wouldn't suffice in their lives to go back to what was comfortable, to go back to what they knew, to go back to the traditions, to go back to the law of Moses, because they had come into a a relationship based on the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It can't go backwards. And they were beginning to believe the lie that they could, and it was affecting them. You and I can go through the same thing. We can face challenges. We can face situations. I had some things come up. I'll share a little bit of it when we have our our meeting after church. I had some things come up that kind of came out of left field, and and I struggled for a bit. I was like, I don't know what to do with this, Lord. And, and, And yet, as I went through, the Lord just gave me the sweetest peace and the settledness in my heart that he's moving, he's working, that he's got this, and I praise him for it. Yeah, of course, I'm teaching at the same time. Like I mentioned last week, he makes me like live through my sermons sometimes. But that's fine. I mean, I love him, and I, I, I love the fact that he just wants to reach all of us with this stuff. So the point is, is that he's promised these things to us. This is a promise. And we can enter into his rest. We can participate in God's own rest. Question. Are God's days filled with stress? Of course not. No. He's not stressed at all. Uh, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, he's not stressed by CNN. (laughs) He's not even stressed by Fox News. I have to admit, I get stressed watching the Ingraham angle at 11 o'clock on Fox. I I started to do that, guys. And and I'm not trying to put it down. But I, I was like, I told my wife, I said, I feel like I'm watching the same show every night with the same stuff. And I start getting all churned up and thinking, that's not right. And you know, I get on this whole little deal and it's like, you know, God's not stressed by this, so neither am I going to be. The king's heart, tells us in the Proverbs, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it where he wishes. And with that in mind, I sleep good. God's not worried. I want his rest. Verse 2, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as them, but the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed. And the word mixed there means united. It means joined together, one thing joined to another, not being united with faith in those who heard it. This is where the disconnect is, guys. This is exactly where we disconnect. We hear it. You can sit here this morning and go, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, and walk out of here and not have your life impacted at all. Because you're not willing to apply it. You're not mixing it with faith. You're not saying that thing that you're dealing with, I need to trust God on this. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I will fall back on what I do understand. And I understand he loves me with a powerful, powerful, eternal love. He loves me with a love that I'll never quite understand this side of heaven, but I'll take every bit of it I can get. And so I do understand that. And so as I go through things, 
I, I, I need to be able to mix. I need to be able to unite my understanding of God with the truth that he's got whatever circumstance I, I'm in. And as I do that, I'm taking his past faithfulness and I'm applying it to his, as a down payment on his future faithfulness. And as a result, I can have rest now. I can set the weight of my life down on Jesus. That's how this works. That's how the Bible lays this out. It's a real rest. He, he talks about the gospel. He says the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. And for them, for the Jews, again, for them, uh, the Jews, it was a temporal, physical rest in Canaan. It was a land. It was a piece of property, a big piece of property. They never took the whole thing. But it was a, it was, it was a physical rest. For us, it's not a physical place, but it's very real. And the rest that God offers to us is a spiritual rest that transcends a physical location. It transcends, it goes past my understanding. That's why very often God wants to give us a peace that passes understand, bypasses my understanding. The peace that passes understanding, it means it goes right past your brain. And I don't understand why I'm at peace, but I know I am. I don't understand, but I know God's good. I don't know my circumstances. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know he does. It's called trust, folks. And that's what he calls us to. He calls us to deepening trust as we walk with him, doesn't he? As a result, rest, peace, joy in the middle of tough stuff. So the gospel for us is the finished work of Christ. It's walking in, in the reality that I, I, my life is redeemed. I've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And not only that, because he rose from the dead, I have power in my life. Because the Holy Spirit uh, is alive and well within me. And he wants to direct the course of my life and illuminate these truths and cause me to grow. Cause me to, like we have on our sign it's not just there because it's a fun tagline. It's really true to, to help me to think more like Jesus, to learn to think more like him. Because Jesus was in a state of rest. He says, it didn't profit them. Essentially what God was saying is, if you trust me and obey, I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, I'll protect you. I want to bless your life. I can block that because... I, I, I don't believe him. I don't trust him. And I don't want that to be the, the mark of my life. And we wrestle, folks. Again, we wrestle. And, and his, his grace is poured out. I, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there's a place where when we're challenged that we can actually come to a place of living above our circumstances because there's a trust that's in place that transcends our circumstances, the things that we're going through. He says it's, that it's not mixed with faith. It's not, he doesn't say it's not mixed with feelings, that the word that they heard, it, it wasn't mixed with feelings in those who heard. It wasn't mixed with experiences in those who heard. It wasn't mixed in, with, with reason in those who heard. No, he says faith. Uh, that's it. It's believing God. Believing that he is. And he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him, is what the Bible tells us. So when he talks about that, he says those who heard, hearing provides the opportunity, but the opportunity only profits us when it's mixed with faith. Say that again. Hearing provides the opportunity to have rest, 
But rest only comes when we mix that with faith, trusting God, trusting that he's got it. They heard it, and they believed it, and they trusted, or they heard it, they chose not to believe, chose not to, uh, and they chose to believe the lie. In that, it was a willful choice. Our will comes into play. The point is, is faith is God's, it's the way that God has ordained to appropriate his promises in his people. There are so many promises in the word of God and each one is employed by faith. Each one is appropriated in our lives by simply believing that that's true. By believing that since it's God's word, since it's God's inspired, inerrant word for me, that it's true. And I can hang my life on that. I can let the weight of my life down on those truths. Verse three, for we who have believed do enter that rest. And as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He says, we again here, it's the Hebrew Christians who trusted Christ. He's saying it's no longer by the works of the law. It's, 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 it's not about work anymore. It's about rest. It's about trust. They, again, in this verse, were the Jews in the wilderness. And so distilling it down, I like to kind of break things down into little bite-sized pieces. He's saying, hear it, believe it, and rest in it. That's really, it's that simple, folks. That's why I said at the beginning, this is very simple stuff. Sometimes we overthink. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm a chronic overthinker. I will overthink something to death. When I simply need to say, you know what, this is what it is. This is what God has on my plate. This is how it's going for me this morning. This is how it's going for me today. And I need to believe that. I need to believe that he's got this and I can rest. I can just simply rest. Very simple. He says here, he says, God's own works were finished from the foundation of the world. It's a reference to creation. The writer's showing us that God's own rest is available to us today. Uh, he, he reaches all the way back to the creation. Verse four, it says, for he spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, when God rested on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was tired. <laughs> Understand that. It was because he was finished, because the work of creation was completed. Uh, in Genesis chapter two, Really interesting, something there that is worth noting here. When, when he's talking about God resting in the creation, every one of the days, the first six days of creation, it says that God saw it and he, and he said it was good and all that. And it, and it ends with the evening and the morning were that day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And he goes all the way through the sixth day. It's not there on the seventh day. It says that God finished the work of creation and he rested, he ceased, he stopped. What's indicated by not giving, there's no time boundary on that, is that his rest continues. And it continues to this day. We'll see that as we go through here. I'm gonna speed it up a little bit. And again in this place, verse five, they shall not enter my rest. He's talking about Numbers 13 and 14. The Canaan rest for Israel was a picture of the spiritual rest that we find in Christ. Verse six, since therefore it remains that some must enter it and those to whom it was first preached didn't enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David today, 
After such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't let the sin of unbelief take hold of you and fail to enter his rest. You're going to be shorting yourselves. David is quoting Psalm 95. As I mentioned, it's 500 years after the fact. This is 500 years after Kadesh Barnea. And he's saying they didn't enter his rest. And and he's saying that in David, uh, he's saying that David was hearing from the Lord. David was writing. And when he wrote Psalm 95, he was saying there's still a rest that's available to the people of God. Uh, It's in verse 8, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he... God speaking to David would not have spoken of another day. So what he's talking about now, remember, Israel didn't enter into Canaan. They didn't enter his rest. And then remember, 40 years later, we talked about, we ended last week with with Israel going into Canaan. And we talked about the stones at Gilgal and, and how God uses monuments in our lives of his past faithfulness. Well, they go into Canaan. And what the writer is saying here is if Joshua had given them rest, David wouldn't have spoken of another day after that. And so what he's saying, he's bringing it forward. We talked about he's going to bring it forward. He brings it forward through the Bible. So he's going from Israel back then, and now he's going to King David, or he's going to Joshua, and Joshua brought the people in to the, the promised land, the land where they would find rest, and they did. They found a physical rest. They had a lot of problems and go through all that. But the point is, is that he goes from there 500 years future and talks about David using the same thing. He's talking about the same thing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David is saying there is still a rest that's available. So that's how he's got this put together. Remember, this is to the Hebrews in the first century. He starts out, he talks about the prophets in chapter one, great men of God, but he talks about Jesus is greater, right? And then he talks about angels and they had a place in Jewish history, especially in the giving of the law, but Jesus, as great as angels are, Jesus is greater. Last week, we talked about Moses and as great as Moses was, Jesus is greater. We've looked at that. And he, remember I talked about, he does this series of contrasts. He brings something up and then he talks about Jesus. He brings something up and he goes to Jesus. So what he's doing here is he's showing us that now Joshua, Joshua was the one that did fulfill the promise, that did take Israel in, but Jesus is greater. Because the rest he leads people into is greater than the rest that Joshua led people into. Verse 9, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. The point, now the big picture, God has provided a permanent rest through the finished work of Christ, and we're invited by God himself to enter into it. That's the point. This is something, this is not just a theological concept, guys. This is a living reality that God wants to work and to engineer in all of our lives, all of our hearts. And, and, and I think that part of it is that we need to learn to get out of our own way. Because if I lean to my own understanding on a thing, I'll tell you what. And, and yeah, I, it doesn't mean that we that we doesn't mean that I act stupid about things. But but truly, there's a time where if I don't understand it, I have to come to a place of trusting that God has it. And in doing that, I can rest in it. I truly can. Ah. <sighs> Verse 10, for he who has entered his rest is also himself ceased from his works as God did from his. So again, the central definition of rest for 
the Hebrew believers in the first century is to stop trying to earn your own righteousness, trying to keep Torah, and let your full weight down on him. That's what the writer is exhorting the, the Hebrew Christians in the first century. And by application, don't try to work this out by thinking that it's about our stuff. It's not about working. It's not about something that we do. It's something, it's about trusting him. It's about simply trusting him, knowing that his, 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 his love is poured out. And, and, and he wants good things for our lives. And as we, as we trust him for the details, for the circumstances, for the crises, for the trials, for the things that go on, uh, the Bible says that all who de desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have persecution. Jesus said, you know what? In the world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. Bible word for trouble. He says, but be of good cheer. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. Those are things that we can hang our trust on. And as we do that, we can rest in the fact that he is in control. The context here is God rested from his creation. Six days he worked, and on the seventh he rested. After the fall, God's work of redemption began to unfold. Because, I mean, you look at redemptive history. You see the first couple of chapters in Genesis where the thing gets set up and creation happens and all of that. And that as that unfolds, then man falls. And from that point forward, it's redemptive history all the way to the end of the Bible. Old and New Testament. And, and so God's work of redemption goes forward all the way until Christ. And when he went to that cross, the work of redemption was done. When Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that after he had made a purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean? That means he's not working. He's, God is not busy trying to work out and laboring to redeem us. It's done. And so now as we look at this, we look at the fact that everything that needed to be done has been done by the Lord Jesus. And when he sat down, it was symbolic. It was indicative of the fact that the work is complete. We can rest in that. We don't have to do things. You know, when I grew up in the LDS church, man, it was hamster on a wheel theology. It was, it was horrible. I mean, I, it was like, you know, yeah, we learned that salvation was by grace, whatever that meant, but it was obedience to the laws and ordinance of the gospel and water baptism and, uh, and good works. And, and I mean, all of those things were added to the work of the cross. And as I came to become a Christian in the early 80s, and I, and I realized what grace was about, what his finished work was about, I realized that every one of those things that they added was an absolute offense to the cross. Because what you're doing when you try to add anything to salvation, you try to add anything to faith in the finished work of Christ, is you're saying the cross isn't enough. Hogwash. It's enough. And the writer wants these guys to know it's not going to be going back to Judaism where you have to work it's going to be resting in the finished work of Christ. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent. In the King James, says, let us therefore labor to enter that land. Let's work to enter rest, which seems kind of odd. But what he's saying, and the word diligent is a better word. It's, it's actually a more accurate word for what's being said here. He says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Jews... 
in the wilderness, in the old covenant, the stakes for them were disastrous. They died. The stakes remain high. If somebody refuses, and I'm not making this about a doctrine of, of eternal security. You guys know how I feel about that. Don't, don't ask me about yours. I'm secure eternally. <laughs> and we can talk about that if you want. But, but what I'm saying, though, is for somebody who has never really come to faith to continue to push God away, the stakes are just as disastrous. But they're eternal stakes. And if you're in a position this morning where even being a religious person, you have pushed God away, and, and, and the Holy Spirit perhaps is convicting you of the sin of unbelief, of, of, of not coming to believe that he went to that cross for you, then you can take care of that. It's a simple decision. Choose Christ. Let the weight of your life down on him. If you're in a position as a believer where you're wrestling with the circumstances that you have, if you're in a position where you don't know how it's going to turn out, I want to encourage you, my friend, let go. Trust Christ. Know that he has, it may not look like it, but he has your best interests at heart. He always will. And where our life gets pressed in is when we don't see it and we have to trust. They didn't see it back then. They, they couldn't understand how God would make them go into this line with all these. And they actually accused Moses of trying to kill him over and over again. We looked at that. We went to several passages where they made up a lie. Don't do it. Understand the purity, the, the truthfulness of God's word. As we apply it to our lives, we can have real, tangible rest, and we can be changed. That's part of his transforming work. It's part of what sets us apart from the world. It's part of what attracts people to Christ, to see there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that gal. I want that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this magnificent passage here in Hebrews. Thank you, Lord, that, that you love us enough to... To, to give us these passages.